0: Book dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and
0: misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book related topic. And in this episode, we consider how historical fiction can bring to life a real world figure who kept a lifelong secret. This story is unbelievable, and I had never heard a word about it. I know, me neither. <laughs> That's why I was so excited when we found out about this book. Plus, the story is also about the making of the Morgan Library, which is on Lower Madison Avenue in New York City, and which is one of my favorite places in the world. It is seriously magical if you've never been there. So it took me about three seconds to decide I needed to know more. Same here.
1: The real person we're talking about is Belle Marion Greener, known to the world as Belle de Costa Green. She was one of the most prominent librarians in history, but until decades after her death, no one outside her family knew she, her mother, and her siblings had been passing as white since Belle was a teenager.
0: Belle was J.P. Morgan's personal librarian from 1905 until his death in 1913, and then she continued to build and direct the Morgan Library until shortly before her own death in 1950. Belle was responsible for shaping the library's collections, and her vision was no less than to tell the history and importance of the early printed word. So, instead of a huge mishmash of whatever antiquities caught J.P. Morgan's eye, Bell turned the library into one of the most important repositories of rare books and manuscripts in the world. She also democratized museum access for the public. It was her idea to turn the Morgan into a public institution, instead of a privately owned library that only Morgan family members and friends could visit. She also pioneered the practice of public scholarly lectures and traveling exhibitions. Because Bell needed to
1: keep her identity secret, she burned all her letters and personal papers. We know a lot about public facing Bell. She was one of the most powerful people in the art world a position that was unique among women. She traveled the globe buying art and manuscripts at auction and socializing with Astors and Vanderbilts. She was widely known for her gorgeous clothes and her glittering personality. And she was constantly featured in newspapers and magazines. But that extravagant personal style was a mask meant to distract the public from the real Belle, who was, in fact, the daughter of Richard Greener, one of the most prominent black civil rights activists of his day. It's thanks to our guests today, Victoria Christopher Murray and Marie Benedict, and the novel that they co-wrote, The Personal Librarian, that we can get a fully formed sense of the inner
0: Belle. The Personal Librarian delves into Belle's upbringing, her intimate relationship with J.P. Morgan, her motivations, and her struggles. It was an instant New York Times bestseller and Good Morning America book club pick. Victoria Christopher Murray is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 novels. Her novel, Stand Your Ground, won an NAACP Image Award for outstanding literary work of fiction. Two of her other novels, Lust and Envy, have been made into TV movies for Lifetime. Marie Benedict is a novelist who's dedicated to unearthing the hidden historical stories of women. She's the author of the USA Today bestselling Carnegie's Maid, the New York Times bestseller The Only Woman in the Room, the international bestseller Lady Clementine, and the New York Times and USA Today bestselling The Mystery of Mrs. Christie*. We started by
1: asking Victoria and Marie how they found each other. Here's what they
2: said. Everybody loves that story, and this one... This one, Marie, definitely has to start because one of the things that I want everyone to know is that this story all began with Belle getting
3: into Marie's head. She was insidious and and insistent (laughs) over all those years. Victoria and I like to think of her as like standing in the corner, tapping her foot, waiting for us to to find her, then find each other, and finally sit down and write her story. I was a New York City lawyer for well over a decade. And I would escape during my long, long work days to um, the cultural institutions in New York. And I really loved the the Morgan Library in particular. I was so fortunate that on one particular day, I was there, a docent happened to mention Belle de Costa Green to me. It's not like there were big plaques or statues of her. There are things there now, but at that time, there really wasn't much. And she, you know, mentioned this petite, diminutive, but powerful personal librarian to J.P. Morgan and that she had played a really important role. And I kind of added her to the list of women I was considering writing about. And so she kind of was on that list for years. And, and as time goes on, I kind of dip into the research about the people on the list. And that's what I was doing with Bell. And when I learned that Bell, I mean, her story in and of itself was remarkable. J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, a woman with all this power at a time when women didn't even have the right to vote, Um, I learned that, in fact, she was passing. And her father, Richard T. Greener, was well-known in his time. He was the first Black graduate of Harvard. He was an activist for equality. He served in a variety of capacities. He was a professor at University of South Carolina. He was the dean of Howard Law School. And her mother had this incredible lineage as well. Her mother had come from this relatively affluent free cultured community of color in Washington, D.C. that um, was well-educated. There were engineers and teachers, doctors. So, Belle, when she passed to become J.P. Morgan's librarian, she had to leave behind the teachings of her father, the heritage and family of her mother, and really suppress all of that and hide it so that she could live this other life. Um, And it was at that time that I knew that I needed and wanted to find a partner. I wanted um, a black woman to write the story with me. I know as a white woman myself, I could not possibly envision what it would be like to be a black woman um, moving through the world, and and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to, to do so. And it was at that time that I read Victoria's wonderful novel, Stand Your Ground, which explores the very difficult and troubling issue of the shooting of young Black men um, from the perspective of the boy's mother and the wife of the police officer, which was a very unusual kind of look, kind of what I do, looking at the female perspective in an issue or a time that we often don't focus upon. And so I reached out to Victoria. And sorry, that was so (laughs) (laughs) long-winded.
2: No, that's exactly what happened. So when my agent... Sent me the synopsis of what the book was going to be. The first thing I did was Google Marie Benedict. It seemed a little odd. Um, I loved the stories. I loved what she was doing of uncovering these women who had these legacies, but nobody know, knew about them. They were hidden in the folds of history. That's what I love to say. And then she was writing historical fiction. I was writing contemporary fiction, but then I called my agent because I said, besides those challenges, has Marie seen a picture of me? Uh, Because the elephant in the room is I'm a Black author. And so my agent said, Victoria, we know what we're doing. Just read the letter. Mm -hmm. Just read the synopsis. And it still took me about two months to do it. Because the first page was about J.P. Morgan. And I just couldn't connect. I did not care about this man. I just didn't care about his life or anything. And my agent kept calling and saying, have you read it? And I said, no, I'm really kind of busy. Finally, she said, you can't be that busy. It's two pages. Read it. And so I did. And when I got to the second page, I was just engrossed. I always say that Marie kind of buried the lead. She hid it in the last paragraph that it was this incredible woman who had helped him amass this great collection, and the entire time, no one knew that she was black. I could not call my agent back, Bastina. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love that. How did the story change from what Marie had initially envisioned, uh, Victoria? Did you were there changes that you pushed Marie to make, or the two of you agreed.
2: Marie had the foundation of the book. And then one of the things that I am most proud of with this project is that every word of this book belongs to me and Marie. Mm -hmm.
3: Absolutely. Both of us wrote this book completely together. So we together had to intuit a lot of how Belt felt about the world that she lived in, how she felt about passing, that the conflict that she experienced between, you know, her father would have wanted her and her siblings and her mother to continue on living as Black people in their society and fighting for equality in whatever way was natural for them, whereas her mother could see that that promise of equality that was there in the early years of their marriage and when the children were first born, the equality that was starting in the years after Reconstruction and kind of culminating with the Civil Rights Act of 1875, That promise was eroding, Mm -hmm. and that she could not rely on that promise for the future and safety of her children. We don't know how Belle felt about that decision. She was a teenager when that decision was made. She did stay with it for the rest of her life, as did her siblings, but she was steeped in culture of equality in the fight. So, you know, a lot of those things changed dramatically as Victoria and I talked, as we discovered our character together. And as we became closer and closer, and she really honored me with her trust in telling me about her own personal experiences with racism, the experiences of her family, her own grandmother who had passed for convenience. Can you tell me a little
2: bit
1: about your grandmother?
2: Yes. I just took a picture of my grandmother and sent it to Marie and said, okay, here's the woman who would have done what Bell's family did. And my grandmother, born in North Carolina, my grandmother was very, very, very there. My grandfather was very, very, very dark, came up to Newark, New Jersey together. And my grandmother never passed as a way of life. My grandmother would pass for convenience. So if she went into a store, and the clerk assumed she was white. My grandmother did not correct him for her so that she could get good service. If she went into the bank, she would get served quicker if they thought she was white. And the train ride up from the south up to the north, there were different accommodations for black and white. And my grandmother took advantage of the white. She never used the term convenience. That's the word that I use. My grandmother would just say she would do it when she had to. Or when people assumed because so many white people just assumed she was white. As you tried to get
1: into Belle's head, in addition to those kind of family stories, what did you look to? Were there historical figures or narratives?
3: It's one of those issues that, you know, I often come across when you're dealing with historical women, because so often, even with women who are otherwise kind of well-known, there's so many things about their authentic lives that are hidden or that are not recorded, because really only recently were women's History is considered worthy of telling and keeping. So, in Bell's case, she destroyed her letters, and the ones that do remain wouldn't have discussed that because that isn't something she would have revealed to that individual, her romantic partner, Bernard Berenson. We relied a lot on Victoria's family's um, history and a lot of research kind of about the topic. So, for example, Alison Hobbs wrote a wonderful book called A Chosen Exile, which examines passing from a historical perspective and relies heavily on original source material, narratives, letters, to explore this sort of thing, both physically, emotionally, personally, that individuals would have dealt with. It gave a deep dive into the sort of sacrifices that people would have to make. When people started to pass, they could no longer be around their original families. Mm-hmm. In the case of Bell, if they were visiting Genevieve Fleet's family in Washington, D.C., those were people of color. And if you were at their house and somebody who knew you as a white person saw you there, they might make that association and your secret could be revealed. Mm -hmm. One thing we knew from our research was that Belle never married and never had children. And that is something, again, that was a very tricky issue for women who were passing. Having children, if you had a child that was significantly darker than you, could easily reveal your secret. Or cause other sorts of problems. And so, you know, those were major sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things that I tell
2: Marie all the time is that a Black person who is 40 years old or older has known a person who's passed.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right.
2: Every Black person knows of someone. You have a grandmother, a great-grandmother, the cousin down the street, everyone knows. So since we all experienced it up close and personal, there were so many things that I was able to take from things I'd heard other people say, things I heard my grandmother say, and then just put it into the story. I knew, I knew how Belle felt. Mm -hmm. passing. I knew. I just knew. Mm -hmm.
0: There was a remark of Belle's that really grabbed me when she attends a ball at the Vanderbilt Mansion, and she looks around at all the women there who are dressed up, and she wonders, and I'm quoting your book, where do these peacocks live by day, or do they strip off their feathers and wander the streets unadorned and unrecognized? And it made me wonder, what does your book tell us about the hidden lives of women in general and of women of color in particular?
3: In all of my books, I explore the the sacrifices that women make in order to conform to society's expectations of who they are, what they do, what they should look like, what they should think, what sort of lives that they should live. In Belle's case, it was more pronounced than in any other woman I've written about. Because not only did she have to to be, as many of the women I write about the only woman in her field, right? Very often in the book, Belle is the only woman in an auction room or the only woman at the negotiating table. Belle has to deal with this other, much more dangerous and perilous layer of having her real identity as a Black person being revealed. I
2: talk now to Marie almost daily about the things that I experienced, the microaggressions and everything and I told Marie one day that before any Black person walks out the door, whether they do it consciously or subconsciously, you brace yourself. You put on the full armor because you know that you're going to encounter something. And it's very interesting because that scene that you were talking about with the Peacocks, where Belle was at the Vanderbilt Ball, Mm -hmm. Belle was wearing a mask because of who she had to be, but she encounters a Black woman there. And the Black woman even had to wear a mask because the Black woman knew exactly who Belle was, Mm -hmm. but she did not respond to her the way she would have responded to a Black woman on the street. So Black people at that time and today are always wearing masks in order to just survive.
1: So I want to ask a little bit more about the complexities of Belle's life. So your Belle has many competing responsibilities to her mother and to her siblings to her father and other Black men and women who could benefit from her example if she were able to work openly, and to herself. Can you tell us a little about how she managed all of that?
2: I call it Black girl magic. She had to be 10 different women to J.P. Morgan because not only was she his employee, she was his confidant, she was his advisor sometimes. She was the ATM for her family. And one of the things Marie and I love to say is she was an uptown or a downtown girl. She could hang with the Vanderbilts uptown or she could just go downtown in the village and smoke a cigarette and drink dark beer. She had to do all of those things. And the only way you can do that is through magic. You know, you run over there and you're one person. You run over there, you're another person. Sometimes today we call it code switching. It was a magical life that she lived in the sense of a fairy tale life in some ways. But she was
3: juggling a lot of balls. She had to be tired every day when she went home and laid her head down. She's spinning all these plates, all these identities, all these responsibilities. She's constantly fearful of making a misstep. And then there's this additional thread running through it of, is she doing the right thing? You know, the teachings of her father never left her. I mean, her father wrote a whole paper, The White Problem, about why the white population had the perceptions of the black population, it did, and rested the blame not upon some flaw in black people, but upon the wrongful perception of white people. And, you know, Bell's accomplishments would have been the fulfillment of his dreams. And yet, the society in which they lived made it impossible for that to happen.
0: I think what stuck with me most about the personal librarian and our conversation with Marie and Victoria, maybe even more than the wowness factor of Belle's accomplishments, is the amount of will it took for Belle to do what she did while passing. Passing must be stressful enough, but to do it while being scrutinized almost daily by the press and the public, I can only try to appreciate the nerve she had and the sacrifices she made never marrying, never having children. Yeah, it's just
1: incredible. And on top of that, to have as a father, a prominent civil rights activist whom she must have identified with on a fundamental level. He was a scholar and a librarian, just as she was, but he was fighting a losing battle for black civil rights while she was achieving a tremendous degree of success that was only possible because she was pretending to be white. That tension must have been so
0: hard on top of everything else that she was doing. Yeah, it's just amazing. And it's also amazing to me that Richard Greener isn't better known given his accomplishments. We asked Marie and Victoria to tell us more about him and his essay, The White Paper. Here's what they said.
3: He was um, the first Black graduate of Harvard. It was an experiment, a social experiment. Um, And he became friendly during that time with Charles Sumner, the famous Massachusetts senator, um, Frederick Douglass, and he really kind of got swept up into this world of activism he held a series of jobs in teaching, which was sort of um, one of the more senior opportunities someone with his background could have. The University of South Carolina became integrated, again, a social experiment. And this is in the years after the Civil War is over when Reconstruction is in full swing. Mm -hmm. And during this entire time period, he's very often on the road as part of this group of prominent activists who are educating people about the importance of equality. They're educating white and black audiences as well, advocating for legislature, advocating for change. Mm -hmm. And it's during that time that he's also publishing papers like The White Problem. But as time goes on, it becomes clearer that that promise isn't going to be fulfilled. But in fact, whether it's sanctioned by legislation or whether it's socially sanctioned, segregation is going to become the law of the land instead. And that's something that Genevieve really, I think, acknowledges and accepts long before he is willing to do so. Years go on. There are different factions within um, the movement for equality, some of whom are taking a more passive approach, some of whom are more Active and Richard kind of gets caught or lost in the crosshairs of that conflict. And right around the time that he's kind of not sure where his footing is going to lie, his relationship with Genevieve is falling apart. Mm-hmm he's having trouble finding work. Um, In New York, he was the head of the Ulysses S. Grant Memorial Project, which was a, a big citywide undertaking to create this huge monument for him. But that job comes to an end, and he ultimately gets posted to, of all places, Russia. He's almost like the consular general. He's like an ambassador, although that wasn't the title. He really loses a lot of years to the movement while he's there. When he returns to the United States, um, he's continuing to write papers. He's continuing periodically to give speeches, but the movement has moved on and he's kind of no longer one of the more prominent members.
0: It's such an interesting story. Now, how and when was Bell's race discovered and made public?
3: there had been rumors about Belle's heritage for a long time. You know, even in like a very mainstream, a very flattering portrayal of her in a magazine or a newspaper of the time, there were tons of of profiles of her and mentions of her. You might see something availed to comment like the dusky-complected Miss Belle de Costa Green, mm-hmm. you know, the tropical Belle de Costa Green. There were always these hints and rumors because she was darker and not everybody believed or they were suspicious of the Portuguese heritage that her mother had invented, giving her the de Costa middle name as a way to kind of explain that away. And, and Belle had, as Victoria put it so well, she had all sorts of magic up her sleeve to kind of distract from those conversations, whether it was a flamboyant outfit, so that kind of smoke and mirrors, look over here and not at my complexion. But the thing that Bell would have been most fearful of is a clear connection between her and Richard T. Greener. If her father's actual identity had become known, then, of course, her race would be known too because he so openly embraced his race and advocated for it, right? That was the reason why they changed their last name from Greener to Green, and um, they really had very limited, if any, contact with him after the family kind of divided. But after her death in, I think it was the 1970s, I'd have to go back and look at the years, a connection was made by a scholar. Mm -hmm. And there was a paper written in which that connection was made. I would not say it was a widely disseminated paper. It was probably fairly well known in scholarly circles. And I think most likely the Morgan knew about it. What I can say is that when I first started going to the Morgan in the 1990s, I didn't see a lot of mention of her. Now, again, very much in keeping with the time, there's not a lot of mention of a lot of historical women in Mm -hmm. a lot of historical places. And that's kind of one of my missions is to change all that. But certainly over time, I started to see mentions of her plaques about her library or about her office. There's a big bust of her on display. And there's a couple other little mentions. So while I don't know how they felt about it initially when that confirmation was made, I'm guessing that they new on some level. And then certainly they were aware of it when it first r- really became confirmed. Heidi Artizzoni wrote a wonderful biography, An Illuminated Life, which Victoria and I both devoured. That was in 2007, I think that came out. And, and that definitively explored that connection. And they would have absolutely been aware of it at that time.
1: You say in your historical note that more than anything, you hope your book will inspire discussion and conversations that will foster understanding, compassion, action, and ultimately change. And we're wondering what the response has been from your readers so far.
2: The response has been amazing because to be honest, I was... um... Really excited about doing this project. I knew it was going to do well, but I wasn't sure how it was going to be accepted in the African-American community only because passing is looked down upon so much. Because I think it's misunderstood. I think people think people pass to be white when in reality people pass to be equal. Hmm. And one of the things that I am just thrilled about um, not only are readers so excited about finding out about her, about Belle, and coming to understand passing and the reasons for it a little more, but people are so excited about the relationship that Marie and I have. And they want to have that kind of relationship with other book clubs, other readers. Mm. And so people are already trying to find a way on how can we reach out and talk about this book together. And that's the one thing that Marie and I wanted as we were writing this book, because all of those things that we want to happen to other people happen to us.
0: That was such a lovely note to end on. You know, Victoria and Marie told us they wrote most of the book together during quarantine, and they talked about what it was like to collaborate during that time and how close it brought them. Julie, it reminded me of us because we started book dreams in the fall of 2019, but we launched it in March, 2020. And I honestly don't know what I would have done without you. You know, you were, you and this podcast were my lifeline and us being so close during that time and getting to talk to so many people. I will forever be grateful for that.
1: I I, I, <laughs> I feel exactly the same and I'm getting emotional.
0: Well, okay, enough mushiness. We should also mention that the Morgan Library is doing a huge exhibition about Bell in 2024, which is the Morgan's 100th anniversary of becoming a public institution. And as part of that show, they're digitizing Bell's only remaining letters, which were written to her romantic partner, Bernard Berenson, and were found in a remote Italian villa. Mm. Bell asked Bernard to burn the letters, but thank goodness he didn't.
1: And on that romantic note, I'm going to say that that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts
0: or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Victoria on Twitter at Victoria ECM. You can find Marie online at authormariebenedict.com.
1: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at Sternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh, come
0: listen to Book Dreams with Julie and Eve.